page 8 of the bulletin uh, for our scripture for this afternoon. You'll see them laid out there. It's really good to be back together again. Uh, I know it's only been a week, but it feels like longer than that with the change in space. Um, We're in our second week of Advent. We started our Advent series last week. Um, And Advent is a time leading up to Christmas that that simply means coming or arrival. And it's this four-week period in which the church historically has um, looked back on Jesus' first coming, remembered His birth, um, the Incarnation, and then also looks forward with this hopeful anticipation of His second coming when Jesus comes back again to usher in the new heavens and the new earth. So it's this time of both remembering and anticipating Jesus coming again. And so we're spending these four weeks considering uh, this idea of why we need Christmas. Uh, That is, why did we need Jesus, the eternal Son of God, to come and take on flesh and dwell among us and be born in human form? We've been asking that question each week. And our scripture today, you'll see, is all about why we need Jesus to come and be our King. Um, We're going to zoom out this afternoon and look at how our need to have a good king started all the way back in the Old Testament with the Israelites. And we'll see how God ultimately meets that need in our King Jesus being born on Christmas Day. Um, All right, so kids and students um, who are in school right now, I want you to think about the last time you had a substitute teacher. When was the last time you had a substitute teacher? It's always big news when my kids come home. At the end of the day, if they had a sub that day. It's an odd feeling when you start that day and your regular teacher doesn't show up. And sometimes that sub doesn't know quite how to get to the classroom, and so they show up a little bit late. So you have a few moments where you're sitting there, and it's just you and your classmates in the classroom with no teacher, and you're thinking, this is going to be the greatest day ever, because we don't have a teacher, and we get to rule this classroom today. But then that dream is shattered when the substitute walks in. And the substitute teacher walks in. Sometimes you've never seen this sub before. And you feel this tension. Because you know that sub might be awesome. Uh, They might let you watch movies and not give you any homework. And it's going to be a really good day. Or the sub might not be awesome. Uh, They might be really strict. And they might be really mean. And it might be a really long and tough day. Um, But over the course of the first 10 minutes of your day with that substitute, you've gone from one thinking that you don't need any authority over you and you'll be fine without a teacher for the day to two, wondering about that substitute. What kind of authority will that substitute have in this classroom today? The question behind all of that is what kind of authority do I want and what kind of authority do I need? That's what's at play in our text uh, this afternoon. Let me read these three different passages for us. First is Judges 21-25. This is a summary of Israel at the end of the book of Judges. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The next passage is 2 Samuel 7. This is God speaking to King David through the prophet Nathan. It says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. 
When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Last one, top of page 9. This is Luke chapter 1. Also happens to be our memory verse for this Advent series. It's the angel Gabriel speaking to Mary. It says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. The word of the Lord. Father, we do thank you for your word. Thank you for speaking to us through it. Father, we are desperate to know you. And unless your spirit uh, goes inside of us and moves our hearts and gives us hearts to believe and eyes to see and ears to hear, then we can't know you. And we're so desperate to know you. So we pray that by your spirit, we would know you during this time. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, So, not everyone is obsessed with their iPhone, uh, but I would argue that most of us are. Um, I saw an article this week um, called The Psychology Behind Each iPhone Release. It's on the psychology of each iPhone release by a woman named Corey Stieg. Um, It's always a huge deal when the next iPhone is coming out. There's the rumors about all the new features and all the websites that have all the rumors listed on there. There's a release date, tons of ads. Um, Stieg in her article gave four reasons for all the hype. The first thing that she said was that um, we are attracted to what's next. We're attracted to what's next. She says, quote, We live in a world where what's new and what's next are considered most valuable. What's new and what's next are most valuable. That's especially true in the moment that we're in right now. Um, She says, secondly, your phone is a part of your identity. She says, quote, every time you look at that phone, it tells you something about who you are. It reinforces certain aspects of your identity. Um, She says that new iPhones, this is crazy, are actually said to boost self-esteem. So a new phone will temporarily make you feel better about yourself because it tells a story about status and who you are with that thing staring back at you. Third, she says there's perceived scarcity. We all know this, especially now, recently with all the supply chain stuff going on, that there's a new phone coming and like not everyone's going to be able to get their hands on it. So you've got to pre-order. So there's perceived scarcity every time they release a phone. The last thing she says is that, that it's a social experience. She says Apple has actually crafted the entire experience of waiting for an iPhone. Uh, From the rumors to the announcement to the pre-orders, the long lines outside the stores, everything is a crafted social experience. All right, think about the first few days with a new phone, a new iPhone. They're actually pretty great, right? Um, But without fail, in about two weeks, what happens? We're bored with them. We found the ways in which the the new iteration might be better than the last, but it's still not perfect. And the biggest thing that we feel is that this phone just isn't enough, that we want something better. And so this cycle begins again, right? Uh, Longing for a better phone, loving it for a little while, 
not being fulfilled, needing something better, and just keeps going and going and going. All right, that's the history of God's people and their kings. This was a cycle of God's people as they had these kings. They wanted a specific type of king to rule them. The king in charge ultimately wasn't enough and disappointed them. So they rebelled and wanted a different king. And it's this tension that we see of wrestling through what kind of authority do we want and what kind of authority do we actually need. And here's the, the, the super zoomed out big picture way I want us to think about this this afternoon. Three things. First, Israel's need for a king. Secondly, Israel's track record with kings. And third, God's provision of the true king. First, Israel's need for a king. So we, we see this in our verse from the book of Judges. What's going on in Judges? All right, so just to give a little bit of Old Testament history, kind of high level, Joshua had just led Israel to conquer part of the promised land, but not all of it. Portions of the promised land, when God's people entered in, were still controlled by the Canaanites, which would prove to be very problematic. Um, as the people are living in the land under Joshua, they actually serve the Lord. Like they were in the promised land under Joshua, serving him. They lived as God's children were supposed to live. But then Joshua dies, and the elders and leaders of that generation die out. And it says in chapter 2 of Judges, And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And so then this cycle ensues. This is a cycle with four parts to it that will basically unlock how we understand the book of Judges. Here's a cycle of Judges. One, God's people do what is evil in the sight of God. They sin. They disobey God. That's how the cycle starts. Two, God allows His people to be conquered and oppressed by neighboring nations. Okay, so you read a lot of this in the Old Testament. You'll hear about these other people groups, these other nations attacking God's people. There's all this war going on. In Judges, God's people rebel, and so God allows those surrounding nations to conquer His people. Three, God's people cry out to him for rescue. So they're being attacked by all these surrounding nations. So they cry out, God, help us. Send us someone that will save us. So four, God sends them a judge to deliver them. That's where the judges come in. Those four things make the cycle of the judges. And that sets the tone for all 12 judges that you see in the book of Judges. Um, as you read through the 21 chapters of the book you see the overall theme is one of downward spiral. So that cycle continues, but it's a downward spiral for God's people further into disobedience. And one of the primary ways that they were disobeying God was by worshiping other gods, especially the gods of the Canaanites who remained in the land. They didn't get the Canaanites out of there completely. They remained in the land, and so God's people started worshiping their gods. Um, all right. Listen to, um, I want you to listen to the description of what Canaanite life was like and why it might have been tempting for the Israelites and just how familiar this might sound to us. Okay, so the Canaanite land, it was awe-inspiring. It was cosmopolitan, lots of material wealth. There were large urban centers. They had superior art, literature, superior trade, Superior political organization. Their religion was highly sexualized. 
Right? That's what the Israelites saw in the Canaanites surrounding them. Um, and this was really appealing to them, right? Both in subtle ways they didn't realize was happening and in these overt ways. And so what do they do? They embraced the gods of the Canaanites. They saw these things, thought, yeah, I want that. And so they went after it. And that, that's what leads this downward spiral to the last verse of the book of Judges where it says, In those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So you can imagine those Israelites thinking, that material wealth looks pretty good. This highly sexualized religion sounds interesting. And they're, they're just engaging in all these things, doing what is right in their own eyes. All right, it's easy to read these Old Testament stories and feel so removed from this idea of like actually worshiping other gods. Did you hear the things that led them astray? Um, they lost their captivation with the true God and became more captivated by the Canaanite gods of wealth, Materialism, culture, politics, sexuality. Um, It was these very things um, that pressed in on what they thought they needed in terms of authority in their lives. Remember that question, what what, what is the authority that I want? I want authority that allows me to embrace all those things. Which is another way of saying, um, I want to be my own authority. I want to do things the way I want to do things And as long as authority lines up with that, then it's great. Uh, Go back to the substitute teacher illustration. Um, We want the substitute who's going to show movies and not give us homework. Um, The downward spiral showed that Israel needed a king that loved the Lord and would then lead his people accordingly. And what happens after Judges? Uh, The book of Ruth you find in your Bible, which ends with this genealogy, that points to this guy named David, who we'll talk about in a moment. After Ruth, First and Second Samuel, they show the establishment of the kings over Israel. Um, all right, so I have a friend in another city who used to work for AT&T. And um, his job, uh, he would travel to different AT&T branches and basically oversee all these locations. And so unfortunately, um, if a manager over a branch wasn't performing, he would have to go travel there and, and, uh, let, and relieve this manager of their duties to, to, to fire them. And so um, this was obviously a really hard thing to do. Um, but he was telling me about one situation in particular where this, this manager was so bad. It was such a bad fit for this particular branch that uh, my friend goes and he has a hard conversation. He lets this guy go. He leaves, and then the, the, work, the people that worked at this branch, they were overjoyed. They were so relieved that this bad manager was gone. They felt freed. They felt like they could finally be themselves, and they enjoyed coming to work. And my friend did not immediately replace this manager, so they just didn't have a manager for a while. And it got so difficult for those workers that there was one of the workers came to him, came to my friend, and she was actually in tears. She was so upset about not having someone to lead her in what she was supposed to be doing at work. She felt so lost. She did not know if she was doing a good job, what she was supposed to be doing. She was desperate to have someone who would lead her well in that role. All right, what does God do after the chaos at the end of Judges, where there is no king in Israel, everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. They need direction. What does God do? He actually gives them earthly kings to rule over them. And actually, those accounts take up a lot of our Old Testament that you see in the Bible. So let's talk about Israel's track record with kings. Second thing, Israel's track record with kings. 
So the Israelites actually tell God that they want a king over them, but they want a king like the other nations have. Uh, But God says that he would actually appoint the type of king that he wants over his people. And he gives them a description. Um, So they say, like with job descriptions today, that a good job description is going to tell you exactly the type of person person that should do that job and exactly what the person, person should be doing. So that if it's a good job description, you can actually take that and use it for a performance review after the fact, right? Where you could say, all right, we hired you to do these specific things on your job description, and we're going to evaluate you based on that. That's a good, good job description. All right, what is a job description for Israel's kings? God gave us that in His Word. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, you can look at, look at it later. Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 to 20 Long before there was a king over Israel, God gave us that. And I'll summarize it for us. It says that um, God said this king would be chosen by him, uh, that this king must be an Israelite, it must be one of God's people. Um, He says that the king's heart must be purely dedicated to following the Lord. So the king over his people had to be a follower of his, had had to love him, and it had to be shaped in his uh, marriage and how he handled money and and wealth and things like that. Um, It says that the king needed to know and love the law of the Lord, his word, his written laws. He needed to study it and cherish it and obey it and fear the Lord because of it. And the king was also to be a humble, servant-hearted king. All right, that was God's job description for the king in Deuteronomy 17. And he provides a king. There's this provision of an earthly king. The first king over Israel was King Saul. Saul does some good things. He wins some battles for God's people. But then what happens? He starts doing things his own way. Then he just starts giving the people what they want. Then he starts going against God and his word. So he breaks that standard, the job description that God had set for him. So as a result, the kingdom is taken away from Saul. The Lord rejects him. After Saul comes King David. Regardless of your experience with the Bible, you've probably at least heard of King David in some form or fashion. Um, It says that David was given the Spirit of God. He's called a faithful friend, a protector, a warrior. In many ways, he is a great king over Israel. And God makes a promise. He makes a covenant with David as king. And that's our passage from 2 Samuel chapter 7. Listen to these promises once again in light of that history. It says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. All right, what is God saying to David in this promise? The Lord is promising that someone from the family of David will rule forever. He promises an eternal throne to the family of David. And this is a really big deal in the Bible. You can highlight that and make notes in the margin because this is a key text in the Bible that somehow God would preserve this line of David and have a king that would rule for all eternity. But if you read the story of David, he ends up failing 
as a king in pretty uh, traumatic sort of ways. And you read the history of the kings, which again is much of the Old Testament history. There are a few good kings. There are a few that follow the Lord and lead accordingly. But there are the majority who do not. They are so far from perfect. And so we're struck again as we read about the kings in the Old Testament with this tension. What kind of authority do I want? And what kind of authority do I need? Um, It becomes very clear early on in the life of these early kings, even from the line of David, that they just were not enough. They kept messing things up for God's people and there would have to be something better that would come. And so you're left with this lingering question as you read through the Old Testament about these kings in particular. How is God's perfect plan going to work when His people and His kings keep making massive mistakes and missteps and sins? How can this perfect plan happen in the midst of all these mistakes? I saw a story this week about a high school basketball team in Michigan. Um, the, team, the high school team was trying to organize practice and they started a group text in order to get the practice organized. And when they started this group text, they accidentally included a wrong number in the text, um, which I've totally done before, actually, with some of y'all. Um, so there's a wrong number in the group text. They're trying to talk about you know, when they're going to practice. The wrong number happened to be the phone number of Tampa Bay Buccaneers cornerback, Sean Murphy Bunting. Um, so Sean, this cornerback for the Bucs, uh, he asks this group text if they meant to add him and add him to the text. And they think it's their high school teammate that's responding. And so they say, yes, if this is so-and-so um, from our team, then yeah, we meant to add you to this, this group text. And Sean says, it, it's not, I'm not that person. And then he texts this group of high schoolers a selfie of himself sitting in the Tampa Bay Buccaneers locker room at his locker. And the high schoolers think it's a prank when they get this picture from him. They're like, what is going on here? Like, what is our buddy doing? They don't think it's real. So Sean takes it one step further, and he FaceTimes the group of high school boys from the Bucks locker room. And soon enough, Rob Gronkowski jumps on the call, and ultimately Tom Brady jumps on this FaceTime call with all, this, all these high school boys. And um, the article had a screenshot of, of these high school boys when they see Tom Brady jump on the call. And like these young faces, they were, they were shocked. They could not believe what was happening. But isn't it wild how such a small mistake, uh, missing a phone number by one digit, ended up being like one of the greatest moments in the lives of these high school kids up to this point. Do you know that God would use the mistakes, the very significant mistakes and sins of His people and His kings to provide the greatest king for them? Let's talk about God's provision of the true king. With all that Old Testament backdrop we just covered, listen to Luke 1 again. It says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And, his, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Uh, Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to David. Jesus is the perfect king. And just thinking about this massive scope of history, do you see how God keeps His promises to His people? 
He really keeps his promises. Um, the history of the Old Testament is so messy. It is, there's so much sin and idolatry, and there's other gods being worshipped. It's terrible. Uh, the people, the Old Testament figures, are never the heroes of the story. They're always the ones who fail. God is always the hero because he is always the faithful one. And you see that time and time again. And he really is faithful. And there had to be times where God's people looked around with the state of their king and the state of Israel and thought, I just don't know if God's going to come through on this one. This does not seem like what he promised us. Where they really wondered, would God be faithful? The birth of King Jesus is God being faithful and keeping his promise. He gives the perfect king uh, sitting on the throne of his father David. And here he is reigning for all eternity. Just like what was promised in 2 Samuel 7. And thinking about how there was a job description for kings. All the earthly kings failed. How does King Jesus use his authority? He is a king who is called what? Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. He's a king who rules forever. His kingdom will never end. Uh, He's a king who rules with justice. He always perfectly does what is perfectly fair. Uh, He's a king who rules with righteousness, always perfectly according to God's word. Uh, He's a king who rules by giving rest to his people who are weary. Uh, He's a king who rules with an easy yoke and a light burden. He's a king who rules with mercy. Uh, He's a king who rules with grace. He's a king who rules by offering forgiveness to those who mess up time and time again. Uh, He's a king who rules by standing in the place of his people who are condemned. Uh, He's a king who rules uh, by taking the hit so his people don't have to. He's a king who rules in humility. Uh, He's a king who rules by considering others more important than himself. Uh, He's a king who rules by humbling himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Uh, He's a king who rules uh, by including outcasts in his kingdom, and the marginalized, and children, and sinners, and prostitutes, and tax collectors, and those with a really sketchy past. Uh, He's a king who rules over all and has eyes for the least of these. Um, The way of King Jesus is so unexpected. It is so upside down, so countercultural, so otherworldly, and it is so, so good. Do you see that he is a good king? And do you see that King Jesus has both the authority that we want and the authority that we need? That he is both beautiful and mighty. And the question that we have to answer, the question we get to answer is, do you know this king? Following King Jesus is better than trying to rule your own life. Um, It is better than living for pleasure or success or trying to have it all. Or all those things that the Canaanite way of life had to offer that is the same things that our culture is offering to us today. Um, Jesus is the one place where our hearts can truly be satisfied. Where we won't long for something better or something new. Uh, For many years, uh, growing up as a kid, uh, Christmas at my grandmother and grandfather's house on my dad's side 
was always a highlight. Uh, so during October or November, they would tell all the grandkids to get out the department store catalogs. You may not know what those are. Catalog with pictures of toys and clothes. And they would say, all right, take this catalog and circle whatever you want. And we were like, yes! And so we would get the catalog and dog ear the pages and we would circle all the toys and things we want. And then we would give the catalog to my grandparents, not knowing what they were going to get us. Maybe some of that stuff, we, just, we really didn't know. So we would give that to them. Every year, afternoon, Christmas Day, that was our tradition, we'd go over to their house. We would walk in. They had this back porch room that, as a small kid, seemed enormous. Um, and it was so full of presents and not just lots of presents, like not a lot in number, like in size, like big boxes. And as a kid, we would start opening these presents, and they always would get us whatever we asked. Everything that was circled was in a box in this room on their back porch. And it was every year it felt like Christmas went so far beyond what we could have hoped for when we went to their back den at their house. Why do we need Christmas? That's our theme this month that we're asking. We need Christmas because Christmas is the coming of our true King. And He is the King that our hearts were made to follow. And He is far better than we could have hoped for. And this King offers Himself to you today. Won't you, by faith, receive this King? Let's pray. Father, thank You uh, that You saw Your people in need of a King. And you provided a king. You provided the perfect king, our King Jesus.